Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com slash events. Welcome to the Connectfulness Practice Podcast. Here, we settle into the murky, tangled, and freaking hard parts of life to restore our relationship with the self so it can ripple out to the people we love, the work we do, and the world around us. If we can't fix what's wrong, then our grandchildren inherit it. In order to fix what's wrong, we have to talk about it. And we can't move that conversation forward if we're not willing to be real about where we are now. We have to push on the edges of what it means to connect. Otherwise, nothing will ever change. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, and I'm here to guide you through a series of radically honest conversations about what it means to be truly human in all of its messy, beautiful, hilarious, and heartbreaking glory. In our collective effort of looking inward, we're starting to do the outward work of reconnecting the world. While these discussions will guide you into the connectfulness practice, this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for the depth of work that you'd encounter with a licensed provider. If something in this episode touches you, reach out. That's where you initiate the ripple that restores relationships. You can learn more about my connectfulness counseling practice and online workshops at connectfulness.com. So we are back today with a dear friend and colleague of mine. We're here with Cindy Darnell, that's C-Y-N-D-I, Cindy Darnell. Cindy is a sex and relationship therapist, a sexologist here in New York. She's available for consultation worldwide and uh, has just written this fabulous new book that I got to read a little early. So excited about it. I can't wait to share this book, this conversation with all of you. Um, The book comes out in June, right, Cindy? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's called Sex When You Don't Feel Like It. And it is fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. I'm so excited to dive into this conversation with you today, Cindy. Welcome and thank you. Thank you. You've been on the show before. I have twice. Well, actually, your other podcast. My other podcast. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So this is our third conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, many more conversations just in life and and me coming well, on yeah. your podcast, yeah. but um, our third public conversation on yes. this show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I am I am just so excited about this book, and for so many different reasons. When I was reading the book, one of the things that came up for me over and over again was how much this is just about an inquiry about getting back into our bodies. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and that, that feels like the essence of what you're teaching. Yeah. 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 And in, in so many ways, because most of us didn't learn about sex in useful ways, in meaningful ways, we were told, if we were told anything at all, 
We were told that sex is for reproduction. Mm-hmm. We were told that sex is for making babies. We were probably told that sex is for men in some mm-hmm. way. Uh, and for most of us, that, that's probably all we'll ever learned about sex. And then we get to our adolescent years, our adult years, and we go into intimate partnerships of whatever gender and whatever orientation with the only knowledge being sex is for making babies. And for most of us, that is not why we have sex. Occasionally, you might have sex to make a baby. And that's a very specific kind of sex that occurs in a very specific kind of context. But the vast majority of us across genders and orientations, that's not what motivates us to have sex. So most of us have very little information about this enormous part of our lives, whether it's sex with ourselves or sex with other people. And when these conversations are absent from our education, when these conversations are absent from our day-to-day dynamics, it tricks us into thinking it doesn't matter. It tricks us into thinking it's not important. It tricks us into thinking everybody must have their shit together. So if I'm the only one struggling with this, I'm the problem. (sighs) But that's not true. Right. You are not the problem, Rebecca. Neither am I. Neither are the people listening. <laughs> this is a collective social issue. And and yet that's the thing, right? Because in your practice, in my practice, I think most people listening to this, it's the I'm the problem. That kind of shame-based stuckness that that they're living inside of, that they come into our offices with. Yeah. What's the matter with me? Yeah. People, we will, you know, in the absence of knowledge, in the absence of stories, we will internalize that absence and deduce that we are the problem. We will internalize that lack of awareness and presume that we are the defective ones or we will decide that our partners are the defective ones, especially when it comes to a mismatch in libido. It is very common for the higher desire partner in a relationship to determine that the lower desire partner is the problem. And that's not Mm. true. Yeah. And people struggle with mismatches of desire in relationships because they don't have the tools to navigate it. Right. So we're back now to that absence of knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. It's so fundamentally the essence of the problem is to a degree. It's, I mean, what we're told about sex is primarily lies. And then beyond that, the information, when, when the information that we have is incorrect or just flat out wrong, we are left then to fill the blanks with stuff that we make up. And then when we fill the blanks with stuff that we make up, we can't tell 
if <laughs> we, we we can't tell what we're doing because we don't know where this information is coming from. If if it's just this sort of collective awareness, you know, this this sort of um, you know social agreement that that men want to have sex all the time and that you know women uh, don't really enjoy sex very much and you know trans and non-binary people are just excluded entirely because they don't have sexualities these things become self-perpetuating prophecies that we end up just absorbing and so if we don't meet these expectations within ourselves or in our relationships or we don't see other stories of this kind in our communities we have nowhere else to go except think that i'm the problem you're the problem rather than could it be that we've all been duped it's it's unfathomable to consider that there is an entire population of humans who have been who have been duped we we can't possibly comprehend that so this can may we, have can, happened can we slow down right there and yeah. like <laughs> that duping i think maybe our listeners might need us to spell out for them okay like how have they been duped what is what is the duping what has happened what have they been told what are the lies i think the biggest one is that sex is natural mm-hmm. it's not it's learned the instinct to explore sexuality i think that is natural mm-hmm. the you know feelings of arousal and horniness that may emerge at different stages through our lives that i think is natural but how to be with those sensations how to interpret the signals of those sensations how to share those sensations with another person that is not natural that is learned that is very very culturally scripted that yeah. is scripted insofar as if you have been brought up as a girl growing into a woman you have been told certain things about your body and its functions and its expectations or if not you, told anything or not told anything and it, and then you know but left by omission to be told that you must be slim you must be pretty you must acquiesce that your desires do not matter and that men can't control themselves and that that's normal and for you to be erotically successful as a woman you must be desirable not desiring all of us have these sort of subtle mm-hmm. awarenesses but we it's very hard to put our finger on well, where did i get that message okay maybe some of us can say well yeah i did get that very explicit message from my parents perhaps you know my mum said to this to me or my dad or my teacher or whoever but a lot of us just absorb this stuff by osmosis we absorb it through through you know advertising through media through yeah. hollywood through yeah so many different places mm-hmm. and then so then it's the absence of explicit sex education i don't mean explicit as in porn but explicit as in direct sex education in the same way that we learn math and english that was a, a thing like you know we learn what a comma is and we learn what a semicolon is and you know but we don't and, learn and about sex, what a clitoris is you know right and sex that mm-hmm. is not just about this is how babies are made no and it's not just about this is what your menses is yeah. or this is what 
an orgasm is. It's mm-hmm. it's also about, or it should <laughs> also be about knowing how to discover your body. Yeah. Learning how to be in your body. Yeah. Figuring out what feels pleasurable to you. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and consent. Right. And also, I mean, I think now, you know, consent has become this thing that, you know, we're, certainly we're talking about it more and that is definitely a step forward. And the conversations around consent, to me, you know, they are still way too reductive because it's gone yeah. from the absence of consent, it just didn't matter, to now it's something that one gives and receives through a series of yes-no questions and I think that that is not even enough. It has to be far more nuanced. And again, the, the root of that comes down to the degree to which we can be real with ourselves, the degree to which we can be honest with ourselves, the degree to which we are willing to admit to ourselves, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm noticing. You may not like what you feel and notice. This is where sex therapy, sex counseling, sex coaching, whatever you want to call it, this is where erotic self-inquiry starts to get a little curly because we will discover things about ourselves that we may not approve of. And and this is like the, the nuance and the depth that you go into in the book around this is, is beautiful for someone like me. Um, and it might be a new space for a lot of other people. What I find is that your your inquiries are very guided by somatics, very guided by what's happening in your body. What are the belief systems that are tied to those things? What, right? And so there's this, um, it, it's like we're going on an exploration. As we go through this book, mm. we're going on this adventure, this exploration of who am I sexually? Have I ever had a chance to learn that? And I'm not talking about like, where is what part of me? Like my nose is on my face and my toes are on my feet. Like we're not talking about that, but it's like, who am I? Like what beliefs do I have? And how have those beliefs or those values shaped how I approach my own body and my partners? Exactly. And these these beliefs and values at a cognitive level are one part of the story. Mm-hmm. And then the other part of the story, there's an emotional part of the story, how you feel emotionally about something. So as an example, you might think, uh, you know, you might think that marriage is a good idea, but emotionally you find it, very difficult to show up day after day after day in marriage because it's, you know, marriage is not for wimps. Mm -hmm. And it's very, very, it's a very demanding role to be married emotionally because you have to, you have to keep showing up all the time. So cognitively you think, yeah, marriage is a great idea. Emotionally like, whoa, this is hard. And then somatically it might be I physically need to get a little bit of space from you or somatically I need to move physically closer to you. And then there's the erotic piece, what turns you on at a mental level and at a physical level. That might be different again 
So right. we've, got, we've got lots of different moving parts happening at the same time. But because culturally, especially in Western culture, we have squished romantic love and sex together into the same category, I don't necessarily think they're very well suited. I think they can be. But to expect that they go together like a hand and a glove is one of the one of the other lies that we've been told. Yeah, it's not true. There were some beautiful questions you ask in the book. Um, <clears throat> you say, like, how would you describe love and how would you describe desire? Yeah, right. My partner and I sat with that question for a while, and we were going. We we both kind of thought into it, and then we were talking back and forth about it. And it, it was just such an interesting inquiry to sit with and be like, oh, wait, what is love? And what is desire? And where are they the same? And where are they totally different and actually have nothing to do with each other? Yeah. Right. And where does actually like my love actually make my desire harder to access? Mm. Right. Like the, the the ways in which I'm committed and, and the the things I have to do to keep this relationship going, they like strip me from the adventure and the excitement and the you know, like there there's something about some of these things, the way that love and desire work, that they're they might be cousins, but they're not the same. Yeah. 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 And in that way, you know, I think I think in the book I describe them as, you know, chocolate and red wine. They can be complements to each other, but you can enjoy them separately. That's right. And and it's just a lot, you know, olive oil and balsamic vinegar is another comparison. Again, they're very, very tasty on their own. And together, when they blend well, they make a delicious dressing. But they also repel each other. And that's mm-hmm. just the nature of how they are. So our quest with working, with discovering who we are sexually. And, you know, the content of the book, the title of the book is Sex When You Don't Feel Like It. So it does work through the notion of how to come back to centre when you've, you know, lost your mojo, as it were. But it's also a book for people who want to take a quest, who want a guided tour through erotic self-discovery, whether you have a libido or not, whether you're dating somebody or married to somebody who has a libido or not. I think all kinds of people, including people who identify as asexual, will benefit mm-hmm. from the practices and the inquiry that the book offer because it's not about, you know, three easy steps to hot sex. That's it's not a how-to book. No, I, I can't stand those kinds of books. I just mm-hmm. think they're terrible because it's based on a cookie-cutter assumption of, you know, everybody wants to feel like this. Everybody wants to do. Like, no, they don't. Right, you but know? this like- is different because th- this book that you have written, it's it's not the cookie-cutter. It's the, okay, wait, what was what's something that's turned you on? Where have you felt like it's it's looking, it's going through the inquiry of look like I love this. You say that one of the single most powerful questions in your toolbox as a sex therapist is the question of why do you have sex? Yeah. Just that. Why do you have sex? And it's such a thing because when I ask my clients that question, 
and they look at me like I've got five heads. And then I just wait. And then I, they sort of shift in the chair and they get uncomfortable and I just wait. And then maybe they'll ask a clarifying question. What do you mean? Oh, what do you think I mean? <laughs> and then, you know, it is it is that thing. And, and a lot of people have never asked themselves why. Yeah. And then they'll say, well, what do you mean by sex? And I'll say, well, what do you mean by sex? Because, again, if we default to penis and vagina and that doesn't bring you any joy, well, then I would say then don't do it. Find something that does bring you joy and talk about that. We have so many ways to approach this mm-hmm. and that we can't even as a, as a, you know, as a society even agree on what sex is. You know, right. we don't really know how to talk about it. Again, collectively, we tend to default to penis and vagina, but that really doesn't apply to everybody. It doesn't. And and I love in the book, you also talk about foreplay. You know, you, you, you kind of, uh, it felt to me while I was reading, and maybe this is because I know you as well as I do, but I felt I, like I felt like I could hear your giggles occasionally as you were writing. Um, <laughs> while you were talking about this, this concept, this idea of foreplay, which is like everything that comes before penis and vagina, right? Like it's, it's right. Or everything that comes before orgasm, right? Like it's, it's the stuff that's also sex. Yeah. It's not just foreplay, right? It's, um, yeah, there was, there was this, uh, quote from the book. Um, it's, it's a short one, but I, I, it kind of, I don't know. It, it really caught me. Um, you said having a deeper understanding of why we have sex reduces our need to have goal oriented sex, or it certainly decenters it. Goal-oriented sex is where the focus is on the outcome and not on the experience or the process. Yeah. I think that speaks right to the heart of this. Like, we don't know about sex. We haven't been taught as a culture about sex without a goal. Yes. Yes. And the goal... For so many of us, again, we've been one of the lies that we believe is that if it's not to have a baby, then it's to have an orgasm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, again, across genders and orientations, don't always have orgasms from mm-hmm. partnered sex. Most of us are more likely to have an orgasm in solo sex. But again, culturally, socially, solo sex is not considered real sex. Huh. Weird. Mixed messaging, huh? Yeah. This is and, the and weird we messages in. too about, you know, is it naughty? Is it bad? Is it dirty to to masturbate, to have yeah. solo sex, to right? Like so so the inquiry of getting to know ourselves, of figuring out what feels good for ourselves, there there's often a like a shame-based shutdown. Yeah. And and that's something else that you talk about a lot in the book. You talk about this, the shutting down. I think you refer to it as like the brake and the accelerator. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so one of the questions you asked is, what would help you get your foot off the brake? Yeah. Right. What would help you to uh, help you learn how to relax? 
Yeah, and that is a that is a much bigger question that again, you know, the science has shown us more about the impact of this break and accelerator model that is is rooted in in science. Mm-hmm. Um, in biology. Yeah, and it and it apply. You'll see versions of it across different parts of of the way that we understand our bodies, not just in relation to sex, but we're talking about it specifically in a sex context here. And what it what it suggests to us is that again, the traditional sort of model, perhaps the old medical model or uh, you know conventional social wisdom is. If you find out in sex what you like, then just do a lot of that and that that will get you to where you want to go. However, what we know now is that it's not about slamming your foot down on the gas pedal because simultaneously you might be doing something that you think is nice or you, you like it or is in some way good and or affirming but it's not bringing you the joy and the, or the high or the connection that you're hoping for. And so what that tells us is that something else is going on and that something else is in this model is referred to as the breaks. And that means you are hesitant to move toward the thing. You are hesitating in some way. And that's not a conscious decision. This is a somatic process. This is something that's happening in your nervous system. And it's not simply a case of, you know, mind over matter. Oh, just relax. You'll be okay. Just have a glass of wine. Don't worry about it. No, that doesn't work. It has to be a greater level of initially safety with yourself and then ultimately safety with a partner or whoever you're with to understand what would help me take my foot off the brake, what would I need in order to be able to allow myself permission Mm -hmm. to take the foot off the brake, to move it, move toward the thing that I think I might want. And for different people, that can be really different things. And this is not necessarily something that we will know cognitively. It might be something that we have to discover over time through practice, solo practice, through sensation practice. It might be something as simple as I need more time for my body to warm up, quite literally. Yeah. It might be I need to know that the door is locked and the kids aren't going to come bursting through the door any second. Mm -hmm. It could be something like that. It doesn't necessarily have to be some, you know, deep, complex childhood wound it can also be that yeah it can also be that and and it could also be like i need to know that um that we could just explore each other and that there's no need for us to arrive at a certain right like that we don't have to orgasm we don't have to make a baby like we we don't need that kind of we can just be here and yeah. figure out what presence feels like together. Right. We, we don't need to put on a show for each other. We don't need to practice all the positions. We don't need to be swinging from the chandeliers. We don't right. need to be comparing ourselves to our neighbours or versions of us that existed 30 years ago because our bodies 
don't function like that anymore. That's right. You know, that there's a there's a few like I'm having so many like bong 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 kind of thoughts right now because that are coming from the book. Um, but one one of the things that I'm thinking about is this idea of uh you know, that we we don't really know how to manage discomfort, so we disengage. Yeah. Right? And that how that numbing affects us because when we start numbing one sensation and we start blocking from feeling something that doesn't feel good or that makes us feel awkward or um, uncomfortable, mm -hmm. then we also block desire. Yeah. Yeah. Because when we start getting into the habit of keeping ourselves safe by blocking out sensation, we don't get to control which sensations have a green light and which sensations have a red light. If we right. block sensation, then they all get a red light, whether we want them to or not. And that is, I mean, you can survive like that, I guess, but that that's a pretty tough way to live. You become... To me, it's like taking the world from Technicolor into black and white. And then it's very hard to have fulfilling, nourishing sex from a black and white world. We have to be able to tolerate a variety of sensations in our bodies and emotionally emotional sensations and, and visceral sensations, which can feed into and off of each other. <clears throat> In contrast with our thoughts, which are an extra layer, again, the goal, the intention, the practice is not to have them all in alignment, but it is to be able to practice making room for them without privileging or prioritizing. Mm. more, you know, one over another. That's right. And that that's not necessarily an easy feat. But I think people who are able to practice being with mind, body and heart in the presence of arousal, erotic arousal, that's, that's really a practice. And that's not a practice that many of us are even taught is an option. Most of us yeah. are taught to just, you know, toe the line and be a good girl or be a good boy and don't ask too many questions. Yeah. yeah there was something that you had written there. There's a, let me just find it. There's this quote that, that like it riveted me. The body has always belonged to either God or science. There has never been a time in Western history that the body truly belonged to the person who inhabits it. I know. It's amazing. <laughs> when I wrote that sentence, I had to lie down afterwards. I was just yeah. like, oh, you know, it's almost like I sort of channeled that sentence. I, it, it just came to me. And I thought, I mean, I, you know, in context, I spend an awful lot of time thinking about this stuff. But um it, it, and it's so true, you know, and I, you, you see this in, in the therapeutic literature, you see this in medical literature, you see this in religious literature, and everybody's fighting about, you know, what sex is and who it's for and what it happened. And no one ever asks the person who's doing the sexy thing, 
how do you feel about it? <laughs> you know, and everybody's trying to, you know, look for patterns and commonalities. And I understand the, the motivation to look for patterns and commonalities is to be able to identify some version of normal. But normal sex. <laughs> I'm waiting for what you're going to say next. <laughs> normal sex doesn't exist like it just it just doesn't there is no such thing as normal sex because our 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 inclination toward exploring eroticism is as unique as our fingerprints like we've all got fingers and we can all identify and we all have fingerprints but none of them are the same right and then on and then on each different finger the fingerprint is slightly different right right so and this, this is the thing with, with sex and our sexual appetites is it will change as we change, as we learn more about ourselves, it will change. And then also as we go through our lives, we will maybe change partners a handful of times and then our partners will bring out different parts of ourselves. Right. And I was talking to you before we even started the recording for the for the podcast and saying, you know, like, I'm noticing that there's a different time of day that I'm interested in feeling yeah. sexual yeah. these days, right? Yeah. Like it's um, as as I grow as a human, as I mature, there are shifts and changes. And if I'm not always an in inquiry about what feels right, then I'm going to, even just by my own standard of what felt right five, 10 years ago, I'm going to be missing the mark today. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this is where it becomes a, a, another layer of inquiry again for, for couples, especially if they're going through couples therapy to think, um, you know, to, to have a formula for how sex is going to be great for us. That if we can, if we can just work out between us how to have great sex, then everything's going to be fine. <laughs> and again, You'll work out a formula that'll work maybe for a few weeks for or a, a few months, you know. Yeah. Maybe even a year or two. Maybe even. But that is eventually going to change and shift, and that is normal. And I think that it, that is one of the things about sex that makes people uncomfortable is it's like it's like trying to hold water. It's very, very hard because it's going to always – just be slippery and, you know, slip between the cracks and... Without a container. Without a container, yeah. Right? And that's, I think, what you're offering here is you're offering a container. The container is the self-inquiry mm -hmm. and the conversation that follows. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The, the container that we keep coming back to, the container holds the water. The container, in this case, the, the self-inquiry and the conversation holds how we are sexual yeah. yeah and how that evolves and changes right you know there's there's a few things i'm thinking of that maybe we should uh talk about define um things like what desire is mm -hmm. what what arousal is mm -hmm. and um kind of how risk plays into all of that mm. so the working definition of desire that I have in the book is 
so the, the sub the subheading of the book is uh, the truth about mismatched libido and rediscovering desire, and people will say, what's the difference between libido and desire? To my interpretation, and this is not a clinical definition, this is just the working uh, usage that I came up with. To me, libido is the visceral element of horniness or lust. It is that rising sensation of of friskiness that makes you feel like, mm, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling horny and we can identify horny as a very specific kind of sensation. That's what I mean by libido. Right. Desire, however, can incorporate libido or lust or horniness, but desire to my definition is a much more textured blend of the mental, the physical, the emotional, the contextual, the circumstantial, the relational, the cultural, the social, that to me is what desire is. And so mismatched desire or mismatched libido is about being able to dig into the machinations of, of sex and longing and wanting and be able to discover, well, what is it that I really want? How do I want to feel? What parts of that do I want to share with you, partner? What parts of that are just for me to know? What parts of that am I willing to accept about myself? What parts of that do I need to do a little bit of extra work on to accept about myself because perhaps there are things about myself in that regard that are challenging for me, that I don't like, that I wish were different, as opposed to trying to hide those parts entirely and say, well, I can never tell anybody that I feel like this or that I actually desire that because of the meaning that I place on it. I decide that if I like this thing or if I like that thing, it means this all of us are meaning making creatures so this is what i'm talking about when i'm talking about desire it's not simply a matter of are you in the mood or are you not in the mood i think that's right. way too reductive for the for the sorts of things that i like to think and talk about arousal i talk about arousal in the book what i mean by arousal is the physiological uh it's a physiological process it has to do primarily with blood flow through the body. Um, it will show itself as erections. It will show itself as engorgement of, uh, you know, the vulva. It will show itself as uh, lubrication of the vagina. It will show itself as, you know, a flushing around the chest, around the cheeks, these kinds of things. Okay. It will usually create a difference in Temperature, you'll get warmer when simply with the presence of blood flow. That's yeah. what I mean by arousal. And arousal can happen with or without desire, interestingly. Right. Enough. Sometimes, sometimes you can have arousal, you can have an erection, or you can have a swollen vulva and be completely not interested mentally and emotionally. Or you can be interested mentally and emotionally and have no response physiologically, just, you know cold chicken down there. 
So, and that is also a thing that, that can happen. So we have to make the distinction between libido, desire, and arousal. And that's how, right. that, that's the, they're the segments that I use to describe it. And I talk about all of that in the first chapter. So we're all on the same page about, you know, where we're going. <laughs> right, right. <clears throat> I just thought it would be, it would be good to orient our listeners so that they are grounded Absolutely, there yeah. with us. Yeah. Right. Because so much of the conversation is about kind of noticing that and then also noticing like one doesn't have to come first. Yeah. Right. Exactly. There, there's not a one way that this has to go. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, again, you know, the traditional model of understanding sex is that, you know, you feel you feel horny and then you have sex, which for a lot of people, that is not how they experience sex. It's how they think they experience sex. But if they slow down long enough to be with themselves, many people discover that that's not how they experience sex at all. And that for a lot of us, the impetus to want to engage sexually comes from some other incentive that often has very little to do with sex and a lot to do with how we feel about ourselves in the moment or the time of day or the, you know, the, again, the context in which the opportunity arises or it doesn't arise or... I'm going back to that question you ask, why do you have sex? Yeah. Right? Because like when I sit with that question, that informs so much yeah. of like why I might stay with the process. Yes. Right. Yes. When I really look at that, like there are so many different reasons why I might have sex. Yeah. Right. And those reasons are, are where I want to like, you know, those are the things that matter to me. That's where I give meaning to. Yeah. And that's the stuff that is going to inform how I show up moment yeah. to moment. Exactly. Exactly. And in the absence of knowing that we have a choice moment to moment, in the absence of realizing that not being in the mood is completely normal mm -hmm. and that if we rely only on horniness as the indicator of whether or not we're interested in sex, we could be waiting forever for horniness to descend and it just doesn't. And I use in the book, I use the um, the analogy of waiting at a bus stop for a bus that never comes. And you're you're trying to get to the destination. So the destination's sex of some kind. So let's mm -hmm. say partnered sex. That's your destination. So you're at the bus stop waiting for the bus that's going to take you to partnered sex land. And you're standing there and you're waiting and you're waiting and an hour passes, two hours pass, and everybody else who's going, you know, to sex land is going past in cars and taxis and skateboards and bicycles. And you're and still waiting for roller bus. skates and everybody else, and you're just standing there waiting for the bus. And then your friends are saying to you, Hey, come on, you know, jump on the back of my bike. I'll give you a ride. And you're like, No, 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 I'm fine. Thanks. I'm just gonna wait here for the bus. Because you insist that the only way you will get to sex land is on the bus and then that bus doesn't come right and then you're stranded forever it's terrible That's and terrible. so many people think 
that that's what being in the mood is, is that they're stuck at the bus stop waiting for a bus that never comes. It's like, I never feel horny. What am I going to do? Get there another way. You don't need to be horny to get there. Just start heading in that direction and see what happens. You mean I can? Yes, of course you can. Just start walking. If this were any other context in life, if you were trying to get to a, a party and and it really mattered to you that you went to the party and the bus wasn't coming, you wouldn't just stay at the bus stop collecting dust. You would you would walk if you had to. Right. One of the things you wrote in the book, one sentence was that sometimes the most direct way back to the body is to use it and reduce the amount of time spent over analyzing in that. Yes. Stop thinking. Stop thinking. <laughs> right? Stop thinking. And this, I think, is where, you know, the version of sex therapy that I have, you know, invented over the years has a lot less to do with traditional psychotherapy and has a lot more to do with an art class. Mm-hmm. Because if I say... An art class that's not about perfectionism. Right. You know, like when you have a bunch of kids who are, you know, who are going to just play with finger paints and you plop down all the paints in front of them and give them big pieces of paper and you say, okay, let's go. And they roll up their sleeves and, you know, dip their fingers into the paint and they start painting and there's no kind of, you know, is mine better than yours? Is this right? Is this good? Is this, it's just how does the paint feel between your fingers? What are the colors that you're most drawn to today? Um, you know, how much, <laughs> how much paint can you smear on the paper? Oh, whoops, you knocked over one of the pots of paint. Oh, well, never mind. We've got another one. You know, we don't give ourselves permission to approach sex in the same way that we approach finger painting. No, we don't. Why not at not? all. why not you know we don't stop to think with finger painting you know am I in the mood for it we just get in there and do it and then if we are halfway through and we decide actually I'm not really enjoying this then we stop it's the same with sex if you if you're halfway through and you're not really into it and you're like oh gosh I've been here for half an hour this isn't working for me today that's okay stop yeah come back to it next week so, so that brings me back to risk, this idea about risk, right? Because right? I'm going to quote you again. I'm, I'm going to keep throwing these quotes from your own book <laughs> at you, right? Because, because I love them, right? So you talk about risk and you, um, you say, for some of us, risk-taking comes easily. But for others, it's an invitation to tune in not only to what we want, but also to what prevents us from being closer to ourselves, our desires, and our longings. Oh, like when I, when I read that piece, I was thinking to think about risk-taking, right? As like tuning into ourselves. Like it doesn't mean I have to go out and do something that, you know, is like out of control behavior. No, not even. We're just talking yeah. about taking the risk of knowing the self. Yeah. <laughs> Well, like, my, you know, like the, the idea of risk in that frame, right? And, and then you shared Barbara Corrales's quote in the book. You said that Barbara says, without risk, there is no growth or energy. However, without support, risk becomes recklessness. In the territory between, we can go grow, thrive, and find pleasure. 
this is like a whole for I think for many people who are going to read this book for our listeners, maybe here today, that there's a whole new definition here about what risk taking is, especially when when we're talking about taking risks in getting back into our bodies and being present sexually with our partners. Yeah. And this is the thing when I was researching the risk chapter, I was looking for science. I was looking for data to, (laughs) uh, you know, just define stuff about conversations about risk. And there was a lot of literature about sexual risk and all of it was just terrifying and terrible. And it was all about, um, you know, what happens if you take sexual risks, you're going to get all these illnesses and these terrible things are going to happen to you. And, you know, you're going to upset people and just, and there was no, there was no literature on taking erotic risks as an affirming self-inquiry practice. Nothing. Right. Like even just the risk of like, huh, I'm not really in the mood for like penetrative intercourse today. I'm, I want to tell my partner that what I'd like instead is. Yeah. That's a risk. That's a risk. Absolutely. Right. But. But there's nothing that teaches us that we're back to the education piece. There's nothing that teaches us that that that's part of how we grow sexually. Yeah. Is tuning into like, what is it that that feels okay for me today? Yeah. And how do I share that? So, so then, you know, following that, that train of thought and following the direction that the book goes to right there, then we're back to talking about shame and how that shame becomes the breaks. Yeah. Yeah. And that that can be the strongest, uh, the, the, the strongest piece that we have to face is the shame of showing ourselves to ourselves mm-hmm. as sexual beings. And that, you know, even though shame queen, Brene Brown, who is fantastic and I love and appreciate everything that she does, but even she doesn't talk about sex. Right. I'm guessing maybe because it's just too icky. It's just too uncomfortable. Like it's the last frontier of the shame work to be able to connect with what stops us from showing up sexually to ourselves at a minimum at a minimum to show up to ourselves. Yeah. That is where my work, I think, really comes into its own. That has been my jam for the last 20 years. And maybe It's been your jam for as long as I've known you. Yeah, it's what I I do. You know, I like to create permission for people to show themselves to themselves and in... The, the, you know, presence of a compassionate witness, have that be okay. That's right. And when we can do that. And the compassionate witness can just be oneself. It doesn't even have to be me necessarily or your partner. It doesn't have to just to show yourself to yourself. Once you have been able to sit with that challenge and take that risk, the rest starts to flow from there. Yeah. 
I think maybe something that is also worth talking about is um, like awkwardness, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. how do we practice taking risks mm -hmm. without also making space for, we don't know how this is going to go. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, a lot of my clients will say to me, you know, how can we, how can how can we make sex be less awkward? How can we, or or even you know how can we avoid talking about? How can we avoid feeling awkward when we talk about sex? And then I say to them, Why do you want to avoid awkwardness? <laughs> you know. And then they're like, Oh, uh, uh, and I'm like, It's okay. We've got time. Tell me why you want to avoid awkwardness. I'm, I'm genuinely curious. I mean, there's no right answer here. You're the one who's saying you don't want it, and that's cool. I'm down. But tell me why you don't want it. What is it about awkwardness that you don't want? Because we're just unaccustomed to having sex and awkwardness in the same sandwich. Guess what? And, and sex is going to be awkward. It just is, you know. And the more there's we nothing get, about sex that's not awkward. Yeah, the more right? we can get used to that, then guess what? Hey, presto, the less awkward it becomes. <laughs> we just got to acclimate to it. <laughs> and we acclimate with repetition. That's right. Over with practice and over, over and over again. And over again. Yeah. yeah. But it doesn't have to be heavy. It can be. But it can also just be, you know, giggly, playful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you also say um, in the book that uh, a playful risk, yes, is something that feels expansive. Yeah. So I make a distinction in the book between playful risks and dangerous risks because risk is a word that tends to make people <clears throat> stop breathing, and obviously. There are dangerous risks. There are mm -hmm. risks that are not wise to take. So, again, I'm not in, nowhere in the book do I take any sort of moral high ground around what people should or should not be doing. Even through a legal lens, I don't take a moral high ground because what's legal in one country is not legal in another country and, and there's religious laws and all those various things. So I'm not taking any moral position about what we should or shouldn't do. What I do say about dangerous risk and playful risk is how it lands on you and the example that I give is when I think about something I want to do or I think about something I don't want to do, <laughs> I notice how it feels to me physiologically. And for me, if something feels exciting, it makes me feel, I, for me, I feel it in the top half of my body. I feel it very much around my chest. I feel it around my throat and it feels like a sense of space becomes available to me. And I notice even that I, I almost, my whole body kind of leans forward and leans into it. Then I know it's probably going to be a risk that's worth taking for me to, to challenge myself and stretch myself into it. But then if I think about a risk that I don't that doesn't feel good. And I don't even have to analyze why. It, it, this is a very, this is a very feel. somatic response thing. And these somatic responses, just to offer some clarity for our folks listening, they're like whooshes. They're kind of quick. Yeah, they're very quick. They don't require loads of analysis and justifying 
they they just are what they are and they can shift and change but in the in the initial stages as we develop our practice we just go with it you know some people call it a gut feeling it's the same sort of thing and, yeah, so and we're just me, looking to tune into it to listen to it exactly. to notice it a dangerous risk for me again i feel it in my throat it feels like it's closing in it makes me sort of pull back a little bit it makes me feel like my shoulders drop down when I think mm-hmm. about it, even my eyes will drop down when I think That's about right. it. That to me is an indication that mm, I think I don't want to do this. Mm. And it's not forever necessarily, but it's certainly it's a no for now. And and that is okay. And when we can give ourselves permission to move through those different kinds of risks, that that's how we start getting in our somatic yeah. risk. You know, <laughs> can, can, can I pause you there for a minute? Yeah. Because you just really beautifully illustrated your knowings about what it feels like in your body. Yes. And it's going to feel different in other people's bodies, yes. right? Like in my body and our listeners' bodies, they're going to learn. Um, we're all going to learn what those knowings feel like, and they might change and evolve over time. Yeah. But what you're sharing is that as you get to know, what does a playful risk feel like? And what does a dangerous risk feel like? What does the yes feel like? What does the no feel like, right? Like as you get to know that in the moment, you can feel that and go, oh, oh yeah, I'm not cool about that. Or, oh, I'd like to try that out, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so there's these different ways of now you are in conversation with you. Yeah. Which then opens you to being able to be in conversation with whomever you're with. Exactly. And that's the thing, even with the playful risk, as you feel yourself leaning toward it or whatever version of yes shows up for you, it doesn't even have to be a 100%. It can be a a 70%. And if you decide that a 70% yes is enough for you to to decide to take the risk, then take it, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you may need to put some caveats around it and say, well, yes, I'm willing to do this as long as this, this and this also happens or whatever it is. And again, I mean, that makes it sound like it's a really big deal. And the example that you gave before of saying, you know, it could be as simple as saying, I don't feel like having penetrative sex today. What I would really like is a massage and just a makeout session that could be a risk it doesn't need to be trying you know going to a swinger party like it doesn't have to be right. that it, it doesn't can be have to be that. something you know very uh the risk isn't asking for what you want right exactly that's exactly right, right. The, the, yeah. the risk the risk lies not inside of whatever the behavior or activity is but inside of taking the risk of saying this is what would feel good to me. This is what I want. Yeah. Would you meet me here? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so that's where showing ourselves to ourselves, being your own compassionate witness is the first step in making the changes Mm -hmm. that will allow your body to feel safe enough to consider taking your foot off the brake. That's right. You know, um, I'm going to jump ahead a bit. In the book, you you later start talking more about fantasy. And there's something you said about fantasy. I don't want to go into all the details because I think it's such a rich conversation and and the book can hold a lot more of that than we can hear on the podcast. Um, But there's this one really important piece that feels like it goes along with this conversation around risk. And uh, 
you offer this, this, like, if anybody knew this about me, if anybody knew I was having these fantasies, they'd dump me, they wouldn't want to be with me. And so then you say, so instead we abandon ourselves and we vow never to engage with that part of ourselves. We bury it really deep, deep down. And I'm thinking along the lines of risk, I think we abandon ourselves there too. Yeah. Right? Like I think throughout throughout all of this, throughout everything that we're talking about here today, I think so much of what it means to be sexual is about coming back home into your body. Yeah, it is. That is the place where everything starts and ends. And when we look to our partners to be those things for us, we miss out on so much and we set ourselves up for loneliness and disappointment because as much as we want to be able to share these parts of ourselves with our partners, we have to be willing at the outset to share those parts of ourselves with ourselves first. And so if for some of us our fantasies are a source of discomfort or shame or embarrassment, fear or anything that we deem to be less than pleasant. That is not necessarily an indicator that something about them is bad. In fact, it's probably not. And also too, you know, fantasies are not always literal in the same way that dreams like sleep dreams are not always literal. We might have sleep dreams about all kinds of stuff that we wake up in the morning and think, my goodness, what what was that? You know, it's not literal. It's not literal. Sexual fantasies are not always literal. Sometimes they are, but often they're not. Often they are symbolic. They They are metaphors. And it's not necessarily something that we want to do. But they can show us parts of ourselves that give us information about what we want or what we don't want, what we're craving. And again, in the book, I talk about that. We don't necessarily have to share fantasies with our partners in order to be close. And that's not to say that we withhold and keep secrets, but there are things about the nature of erotic fantasies that are wildly misunderstood that we assume because I'm thinking about this thing, then therefore I want to do it. And I know for certain from having spoken with thousands of people over the years when people have brought all kinds of fantasies to me, fantasies that they have found, let's say, abhorrent. In 70, 80% of those cases, those people have not wanted to act on them. They would say, Mm -hmm. I would never do that in real life, but why am I thinking about it? It opens a portal to something within us that is worth exploring, but it doesn't mean anything bad. It doesn't mean that we have to do anything and act on these fantasies. This can be a huge source of us slamming our foot on the brakes, feeling like because I fantasize about this, that, and the other. Something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with me, yeah, and it's not. It has no more bearing on who we are and and our what we long for erotically than you know, than our sleep dreams necessarily. That's right. Yeah. 
Yeah. So as, as we start to wrap up this conversation, there's one more quote from your book I want to share. And that's that misunderstandings about sex, desire, or expectations of each other, and how sex is supposed to be often form the core of sexual problems in relationships. The problem is not usually sex, but communication about sex and its offshoots, emotions, power, and turn-taking. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Yeah. Right. It's there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with your partner. There's nothing wrong with your relationship. Yeah. It's just what you don't understand and what you're not able because you don't understand it. You can't communicate it. Yeah. 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 And that's the thing. And there's so many people suffer unnecessarily by keeping these things in a vault, keeping these sort of subterranean elements away from the light of day because they dare not admit to themselves that it's happening. They dare not share it, you know, and communication. I talk about this in the book too. Communication is not just saying your piece. It's also hearing what's happening for your partner. Listening is such a huge piece of communication. So sometimes you may think, well, you know, I'm pretty middle of the road. There's nothing going on for me. But your partner may have all this stuff that they uh, that they want to share with you, but they are reluctant to because they're concerned about your capacity to hear what they've got to mm. say. Very much. So this is the communication piece also, not just what you want to say, but are you able to hold space and hear what's going on for your partner? It could be that they have some wild fantasies. It could be that they just want a shoulder massage. And that's risk-taking too, just to show up and listen, Yeah, to really hear that space. That's a risk. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's one other like really significant piece that you pointed out in the book that um, I've been playing with in my own work with my clients and exploring just personally also. And that's this idea about giving and receiving and how, you know, you, you can't really do both at the same time. Yeah. Or at least not well. Yeah, you can't be well. present. Yeah. In, right. So like with my clients, I'll often have them like, and, and you kind of talked through this in the book too, um, just with one hand, touch their forearm, mm-hmm. right. And experience what it feels like to be touching and what it feels like to be touched. Yeah. When I do that to myself, I notice I feel either the touching or the touch, but I can't feel them both at the same time. Like my consciousness can't perceive both together. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so when we kind of parlay that into sex, I think that also shows up with like, how do we do sex acts? Yeah. Right. Like someone is giving, someone is receiving. If we're both trying to give and receive at the same time, that interferes with our pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, because With our ability it, to be present. Yeah, again, like one of the one of the you know narratives that sit on the back of sex is natural, is that for sex to be fulfilling, it has to be mutually simultaneously beneficial. <laughs> it's not. I don't. I don't think I've ever had mutually simultaneously beneficial sex, and I've had a lot of sex over the years of many different stripes, and when I think about my you know, my top, my peak 
sexual experiences, my, my all-time favourites, they have been where either I have been absolutely the recipient of the touch and it has been exactly how I wanted it on my terms or where I have offered that to somebody else and I've been doing the touching and, and offering a gift to them. To be able to have, you know, again, this, this really comes from this notion that you know, real sex is penis and vagina sex and everybody has simultaneous orgasms and it's all blissfully fabulous. And I don't want to say that that doesn't happen. I mean, yes, it happens sometimes. But if that is the only thing that is going to satisfy your soul, if that is the only way that you're willing to extend yourself sexually is to replay a script of, of simultaneous orgasm based sex you can do that but at some point you're going to even your your body is going to find that a little bit boring it's going to find that to be a lot of pressure and getting into the practice or the habit even of allowing sex to be for the benefit of one person at a time can be a very 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 liberating way to start exploring the essence of pleasure rather than trying to perform sex in a certain way because you think it's how it's supposed to be, even if it doesn't necessarily feel especially good or the risk of failure leaves you feeling less than. Mm. It, it, it just leaves such an, to me, it just leaves such an empty shell where a full heart could be. And we we can change that script by deciding, coming back to our why, why do we have sex? What do we want to feel? Why are we doing this? What is the intention? What is the purpose behind this? If, you're, if your why is to fulfill a social script, okay, then go for it. Knock yourself out. But if your why is something more textured, go with that. That is where you're going to find erotic fulfillment. Thank you, Cindy. That feels like the perfect place to land. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to encourage all of you listening to go out and pick up Cindy's new book out this June, Mm -hmm. uh, June 2022. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's called Sex When You Don't Feel Like It by Cindy Darnell. Um, We'll have a link in the show notes. And thank you all for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope you all enjoyed today's conversation with Cindy Darnell, somatic sexologist, sex therapist. Um, Cindy, you can reach her at cindydarnell.com. That's C-Y-N-D-I, Darnell, D-A-R-N-E-L-L.com. There you can also learn more about her many offerings, her book, go ahead and pre-order it. It'll be out again June 2022. Um, It's a fabulous book, Sex When You Don't Feel Like It, The Truth About Mismatched Libido and Rediscovering Desire. And also head over to our Why Does My Partner podcast. We're coming back with season three. We're super excited about it. So head over there and have a listen. Let us know what you think. Send in some questions and I'll be back 
next month in June 2022 with a really exciting interview with Terry Real. Take care and continue to embrace awkwardness as you grow. Learn more about my counseling practice, intensives, and online workshops over at connectfulness.com. And if you haven't already, check out our sister podcast, Why Does My Partner? Why Does My Partner tackles questions from listeners who want help in relationship. These questions, your questions, send them in, are relationship gold. They echo the conversations that take place over and over again in our therapy offices and take us deep into conversations around the skills that are right at the heart of relationship intimacy, greater health, and fulfillment. Jules, Vicky, and I also offer essential skills relationship boot camps. You can learn more about those at whydoesmypartner.com. You can listen to this podcast wherever you get your audio. We'd love if you follow and subscribe to the show, share it with those who may also be interested. I want to express my deepest gratitude to the musicians behind the beautiful soundtrack for this podcast, Sarah and Chris Ferris, who recorded and mixed this music at Kidney Stone Studio. And thank you, dear listeners. It's such a pleasure to be on this journey with you. This podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, and it's copyrighted by Connectfulness Counseling. And we'd love to hear from you. Please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram over at Connectfulness. Take care and be well. Until next time. Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com events.